morning everybody. Um, we're going to do the reading today from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 10. As for you who were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Many years ago in New England, in America, a young burglar happened upon an old house with its back door unlocked. Under the cover of darkness, he stuck inside and began to rummage around the house whilst looking while the occupants were asleep upstairs. He quietly opened drawers, looked through cupboards and searched for money, for anything he could sell quickly for cash. When suddenly he heard a floorboard creak behind him and swinging around, he looked right into the double barrels of a shotgun. At the other end was an elderly gentleman who smiled and simply said to him, Young man, I want to warn you now, but you are standing in the space I am about to shoot. The young man quickly vacated that space and that house. And this morning we have just read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11, 1 to 10. And I need to warn you today, dear viewers, that you are standing in a space at which I'm about to shoot. For this whole passage gets to the very core of the gospel message, the heart of Christianity. And it is relevant to every one of us, to you and to me and to the whole of humanity. And the first thing that becomes apparent in these ten short verses is that we are in a grave crisis. A grave crisis. I mean that quite literally. We are in a grave Paul tells us in verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And to make the point totally clear, Paul repeats this statement again in verse 5, that we are made alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Verse 1 and 5, here Paul is saying that we are literally in the grave. That before being saved, we are spiritually dead, spiritually incapable of doing anything. The dead cannot do anything but be dead. They are dead. And Paul, for emphasis, just doesn't just speak about sins. He also speaks about transgressions. And this helps us understand the failure that he's talking about. In our contemporary society, it's we often joke about sin, don't we? Sin is something akin to a, a misdemeanor. We, we joke as if it's something that's not very important or very serious. We talk of 
you know, if you're doing a diet, we talk about having too many calories as having too many sins. And we joke about things being so good, so delicious, that they're sinful. Sin is something that is delicious, a forbidden fruit, something harmless, something we enjoy in secret, like indulging in a bar of chocolate. But sin in the Bible is not simply being naughty. Sin in the Bible is treason. And treason carries with it a sentence of death. Paul uses two Greek words here to reinforce his point. The first is the word sin, hamartia, which is literally a shooting word. And it means literally missing the target, missing the mark. You know, when you have the Olympics, archery is a popular sport. And as in any shooting competition, getting close to the target isn't good enough. You've got to hit the target to win. You may shoot off 30 shots and everyone miss that exact target. They may be close. But that doesn't count. Only hitting the target counts. And for us as human beings, we've got to do this every time, not just once or twice, but in all our behaviours and all our actions, hit the bullseye every time. Another word that Paul uses uh, for sin is the word trespass, which is paratuma, paratuma. And this is a walking word and it talks about meaning to slip or to fall or to miss the correct path. So Paul is saying here two things. He's saying that if you want to get to God and to be fit for heaven, then you need to do these two things. First of all, you need to perfectly hit the bullseye every time. Never to miss. A hundred percent record. And secondly, you, may, you must never slip or fall or take the wrong path. You cannot find God without both a perfect score and taking the right path. And how many of us have done that in our lives? The Bible tells us clearly, even if we try and deceive ourselves by pretending that we can do it, that we are good enough, the Bible says no, no one is. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standards of God, if you like. Psalm 14 they are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So in other words, the Bible tells us that we're all taking the wrong path. We're all slipping and falling and, and missing the mark and, and not getting there. And, and that's the reality of human being, human life. It's a reality that you and I live in day by day. And the world, and, and, the, and uh, Paul makes it quite clear, actually, it's even worse than that, because not only is it difficult to, to get, not to slip and not to fall, but there's pressures out there in the world that contribute to us stumbling and falling and making mistakes. He talks about, in verse 2, the ways of this world, the ways of this world, and literally the word ways in Greek, aeon, means age, or it's referring to the, the fashions of the time, the customs of the time, the, 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 the views, the modern views that prevail at a given location and in a given age. What we could call, if you like, peer pressure. And these can be extreme, and down through the ages, They've persuaded people to go with the current culture and to ignore 
uh, it, when, our, when our culture contradicts the Bible, what God will have for us. Now, a few years ago, back in the um, mid-last uh, mid, mid decade, um, I was the warden of Church House Germany, which is a, a big 60-bed facility, or was a big 60-bed facility, and I used to run tours for soldiers um, down to the famous SS castle, which is Wiewelsburg. And Wiewelsburg Castle was famous. It was established by Himmler, a um, medieval castle that became the centre of the SS cult and their religion. And actually, the castle itself was, in fact, um, had its own concentration camp uh, alongside both within the walls of the castle and then actually in the centre of a local village. And that meant that um, the people in that village and, and the surrounding areas were confronted day by day with the reality of what National Socialism was doing to Germany and doing particularly to people groups, the Sl Slavonic peoples. There were a lot of Eastern Europeans in this concentration camp. There were some Jews, there were some homosexuals and other people of different um, different uh, uh, classes who actually were condemned by National Socialism. This was happening right in the village. And farmers would speak about the um, the, the, the sickly smell that would come from the crematoria at various times during the week and would waft its ways over the fields as they were as they were ploughing the fields and working the land. And yet people felt powerless. They turned the other, other they, they turned away from what was going on. They ignored it. And that was true of the Christian church, many of the Christians in the church in Germany. Uh, during, during that particular conflict. Many embraced the political culture of the time, well before the Second World War. So much so that the German Christian movement used to march with Nazis and had their own banners. And in, in the place where normally the swastika was, they had a cross and they would march proudly down streets through Nuremberg and through Munich, declaring that they were Christians who were following National Socialism. One very shamed um, Christian woman wrote later on after the war that, um, that behind her church there had been a row, railway and that sometimes on Sundays when they were having their services they would hear the trains trundling in past and they could hear the screams and the cries from people inside those trucks. So what did they do? They turned the organ up and sung louder to drown out the noise the cries and the screams. And our age is no better. We are, in, we are living in an age that is not a good age. It's morally corrupt and bankrupt. Many things that go on in our society under the idea of free will, uh, but we, we honour and we worship so much in the 21st century, cause much suffering to many, many people. And yet we turn our eyes and look the other way. We stop our ears. We sing louder and pretend it's not really happening. And the reason for this is because our current age is not under the rule of God. And the Bible is quite clear of that. Paul talks about, in verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And we need to hear this. The ruler of the kingdom of the air of this current age is not God and it is not Jesus. The ruler of the kingdom of the air is Satan. And the word Satan, Satanos in Greek, literally means enemy. So why is it that so many Christians want to make the enemy a friend in the 21st century? They want to ignore what's going on and simply drown out the, the, uh, the different voices 
and pretend everything's okay, that we're intellectual, we're enlightened in the 21st century. We've got it right. No one else got it right. We've got there. <laughs> Praise be. Pat ourselves on the back. We're okay. And yet Jesus came to rescue us from this age and all ages until the coming of his kingdom. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Any age that doesn't live according to the will of God is an evil age because God sets the standard. We fall short of that. Not only does the pressure and trends and fashions of our era mould us and try and mould us into their form, but there's also a dark spiritual force at work. When Paul says this, he talks about Satan being the ruler of the kingdom of the air. This is why people struggle so much with overwhelming addictions and temptations. It's not merely physical. It's not merely about habit forming. It's not merely about you know, uh, pattern forming that we do in our lives that we can't change. It's far more spiritual than that. There is a force, a malevolent force, working in our world. Again, the Bible speaks this so clearly. We ignore this so much as Christians in the 21st century. Galatians 4 verse 3, Paul says, When we were children, we were slaves to the elementary spirits of the universe. The elementary spirits of the universe. And in Colossians 2 verse 8, Paul says, See to it, but no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. There are elemental spiritual forces working every day to pull you down, to cause you to slip, to cause you to, to cause you to turn the wrong path, to cause you to miss the mark. That's why it's so difficult to be a Christian. That's why it's diff so difficult to be a human being. Because things are stacked against us in this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, is planning and plotting to pull you down. That's why we need spiritual help. We can't do it by ourselves. We need God to help us. There are real forces out there. And the thing is, is that sin, that wrongdoing cuts us from God. It leads to spiritual death. Isaiah, the prophet says, but your iniquities have separated you from the face of God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you are not here. Sin separates us from God. And as it separates us from God, who's the giver of life, sin separates us from life itself. We die spiritually. We become dead in our sins. So finding life is not about finding ourselves, it's not about doing our own thing. Finding life is about finding God and his son Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said those wonderful words, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the path. Any other path is the wrong path. It will lead you away from God. It will lead you away from life. So in our early, natural, earthly condition, we are spiritually dead, unable to find life. Perhaps it's a bit like in the words of Private Fraser from Dad's Army. What a doom. What a doom. We are doomed. We are doomed in our own condition. If we carry on going our own way, we are doomed. However, there is light at the end of a tunnel and it's not an oncoming train because Paul also mentions not just 
the grave crisis, he mentions a godly characteristic. A godly characteristic. You see, uh, if it was left to us, there would be no hope. I mean that quite literally. There is, of course, the famous saying, while there is life, there is hope. But we are spiritually dead. There is no hope. We are dead. We are already in our grave spiritually. We're incapable of doing anything about our situation. The dead can't cry out and ask for a doctor. Can't dial 999 and ask for an ambulance. Can't limp themselves into the, the, the emergency room and, and lay themselves upon a gurney. The dead are dead. They can't do anything. We are dead in our spiritually dead in our sins. We cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. And this was a situation that so moved Martin Luther during his life. He struggled with his sin all his life. And he knew deep down that he would never be able to meet the righteous demands of God. His very best always fell short of that. He writes about his struggle in his early Christian life. He says this, I tried as hard as I could to keep the rule. I used to be contrite and make a list of my sins. I confessed them again and again. I scrupulously carried out the penances which were allotted to me, and yet my conscience kept nagging. It kept telling me, you fell short there. You were not sorry enough. You left that sin on your list. I was trying to cure the doubts and scruples of the conscience with human remedies, the traditions of men. The more I tried these remedies, the more troubled and uneasy my conscience grew. Literally, Luther had an overwhelming sense of the majesty and the wrath of God. He was literally brought low by the realisation that he could never be good enough. And nor can we. We need to realise that for us to experience God's peace and forgiveness, we cannot claim to be good enough. That is why God sent his son. And so Paul changes our focus from looking at our woeful condition to looking at the solution. And he does this in verse 4 where he writes, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It was hopeless. We were dead and beyond hope. Yet, because of his great love for us, Paul turns the focus away from you and from me, from our crying, we're doomed, we're doomed, like Fraser. He says, look away from yourself. Look away from here and start looking at God. Start looking at the solution. Because God has not just a love for us, a great love, a mega love. He is the solution, the one we need to look, look at. And then he says in verse 4, he speaks about God who is rich in mercy. God is not just merciful, he's rich in mercy. Mercy flows out of his pores. He is a merciful God. He is like great Niagara of mercy and of love pouring down upon humankind. He doesn't have a little pool, a little bucket, a little, little, little container of mercy that he flicks out occasionally at people. He is flooding mercy into your life and into mine. He is rich in mercy. 
And then Paul says that God made us alive in Christ. He made us alive. We didn't make ourselves alive. We cannot make ourselves alive. We are dead. The dead can't make anything. The dead just rot and decay. God made us alive in Christ. It's not to do with you and me. It's to do with him and his love and his salvation coming through his son, Jesus Christ. God, who is rich in mercy, saves us through the work of his son, Jesus, upon the cross. That's why Paul repeats this whole phrase like a mantra throughout the New Testament. Colossians 2 verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. Not you. You can't do it. I can't do it. God makes us alive. That's the reality of what so moved Martin Luther. That was at the root and the heart of the Reformation. Because he suddenly realised that it wasn't indulgences. We didn't need indulgences. We didn't need these special papal blessings from the Pope, uh, from the Pope that, that actually enabled us or wrote off certain sins. God had written off sin in his son, Jesus Christ. We didn't have to pay money for the building of St. Peter's. God had done that freely as a gift through his son, Jesus. And as Martin Luther studied the writings of St. Paul, he came to realise that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1 verse 7. That faith was the key. Faith was the mechanism. We need to simply believe and receive this wonderful gift. It's not about human effort. It's all about Jesus. What he has done for us on the cross. Martin Luther began to realise his conscience has been right all along. He was not good enough. None of us are. Martin Luther couldn't save himself. God saved him through Jesus Christ, his son. Many years ago when I was a, a young Christian, I was stationed in RAF Larbrook and I was serving in the Royal Air Force as a, as a policeman, as you can see in that particular picture. And I'd become a Christian uh, about a year beforehand, and I was really struggling with my a guilty conscience. And I used to go along to the station church quite a few evenings a week, and I would kneel down at, late at night, and I'd pray, sometimes for three or four hours. I used to pray on my knees, because that was uncomfortable. And I could, I would pray for so long, I had huge calluses on both my knees, huge lumps of dead skin. And I was struggling with my guilt. I felt guilty. I was constantly being bombarded with temptations. I was giving in a lot of time to those temptations. I was then repenting and saying sorry to God and then doing the same thing again. And so I'd pray for hours and then I would um, often have periods of fasting where I wouldn't eat food for one or two days. And then I, 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 I used to give things away. I used to give my money away. I used to be a bit like a hermit. I had one jacket, a donkey jacket. I used to walk around camp and when I used to leave back in the UK in an, an old bag. And I, I, I used to use my money and just give it away and buy things other people. And um, I, I, I was almost like a, living like a monk for a while. And I was struggling with this guilt. And this actually carried on for about 18 months to, to two years until I went to Bible college in Glasgow. Um, in the Bible Training Institute and there I began to learn systematic theology and my teacher Roy Kersley began to talk to us about grace. And I remember one night, one evening, sitting in my room and suddenly the penny dropped. The penny dropped. 
And Luther was challenged by uh, Romans 1, 17, and I was challenged by Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith we cannot please God. I suddenly realised faith was the key. I was trying to please God by my actions, by, my, by, by trying to you know, be so devout in my life. I was trying to earn my salvation to make him happy. When I felt happy, I felt he was happy. And of course, I was living my feelings as well. I wasn't living my faith. And it was a disaster. And I was really unhappy. And suddenly the light came on in my life. And I remember the next day going along to speak to Roy Kersley and telling him it's as if I'd become a Christian. I suddenly felt clean. I suddenly felt that I was a Christian. And so Paul finally speaks in this passage about a graceful conclusion. He talks about a, a, um, a grave crisis in this passage. He talks about the crisis we're going through and he and he then he looks at the godly characteristic of love and mercy. And finally, he comes to this graceful conclusion, a graceful conclusion. And the wonderful thing about the Christian faith is just that it is a faith. And faith is at the centre and the reason why we can receive peace from God. You see, we cannot save ourselves. We're not good enough. Remember those two words for our feelings in verse uh, in verses, chapter, verse one, you know, the idea of missing the mark and and, and walking correctly, not slipping or falling. Well, all of us have already missed the mark. We've already slipped and fell so many times. We've got, our, our copybook is well and truly blotted. We cannot achieve the standard, the perfect standard of God. We require grace. God reaches down into our situation. He reaches down into our grace. And as he raised the Lord Jesus Christ up from the dead, he spiritually raises us up from the dead and gives us life. He renews our spirit. He equips us. He, he breathes life into our spirit. His, his life, his eternal life into our being. And for the first time in our lives when we become a Christian, we start to live. We start to enjoy the presence and the joy of knowing God. But we can't do it by ourselves. He does it for us. And twice, again, Paul re-emphasizes, like he re-emphasizes by mentioning sin twice, he re-emphasizes the, the, the mechanism. Of salvation twice. He says in verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. And verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You see, we can never boast about being a Christian, about being good enough, about being better than other people, because we're not. We're as flawed as anyone else out there. But we recognise that we can't do it alone in God. And we ask God to come into us and to reach down and to breathe his life and his spirit into us. It's a gift. It's a gift. Grace is something you don't deserve. It is literally unmerited favour. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And a gift is something you receive. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You simply are the recipient of it. And this is where faith comes in. You believe that the gift has been given to you. So you reach out and the gift is placed into your hands. You need to believe that the gift is for you. That God is rich in mercy. That he is a God of great love. But he wants to forgive us through Jesus Christ. That is the act of faith. Saying, I believe this is for me. I believe I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. I'm bad. And I need your life. 
We need to really realise that we can't save ourselves and throw ourselves upon the love and mercy of God. That is grace. Grace is undeserved. In 1987, the IRA planted a bomb in Enniskillen uh, in Northern Ireland, just west of Belfast. It was time to detonate right in the middle of the public service of remembrance taking place on that Sunday morning. And when it detonated, it killed 11 people and injured a further 63. And the 23 year old daughter of Gordon Wilson was one of those who died during that blast. She was buried under five feet of concrete and brick. And her injured father sat with her, holding her hand. And her last words to him were, Daddy, I love you very much. She had suffered a severe spinal and brain injury and died just hours later in hospital. A newspaper later proclaimed that no one remembers what the politicians had to say that day. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he confesses. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. So what had the draper, Gordon Wilson, what had he said that so amazed everyone speaking from his hospital bed? Well, that very day, Gordon Wilson said, I have lost my daughter, but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Mary Wilson back to life. I shall pray tonight and every night, but God will forgive them. What an incredible act of grace. The night his daughter had died, 20-year-old Marie Wilson, a nurse, had died. He prayed that God will forgive those who caused the terrible suffering of his family and many others. That is grace. And Gordon Wilson went on after that to work for peace and reconciliation between Catholics and Protestants until the day he died. He made a massive impact. He brought light into the conflict in Northern Ireland. He brought light and forgiveness into the, the hearts of people in Enniskillen. He had a work of grace to do by showing the grace of God his Father. Grace is undeserved, it's unlearned, unearned, it's free, it's beautiful. And God gives us grace through Jesus. He forgives all you've ever done and offers you a fresh start. You cannot save yourself. You could never be good enough. None of us can be. Remember this. You can atone for breaking a law. You can, in some measure, put things right when you've broken a law or transgressed um, something legal. But this is not about breaking laws. It's about breaking hearts. Because we have broken the very heart of God the Father. He made us. We are his creation. He put life into us as an act of blessing and of grace and of goodness. And as soon as we were given free law, we stuck two fingers at him and said to go away. And we went our own way. And as a father, he came after us and tried time and time again to guide and direct us. But we continually rejected him. We broke his heart. 
And eventually when, we, when he sends his most precious thing, his one and only son, what do we do? We kill his son and we put him upon a cross. We broke the father's heart. You cannot atone for breaking someone's heart. You can only be forgiven. And God forgives us through Jesus Christ. You and I are never going to be good enough, people. It is only by grace, grace alone, that we are saved. It is not because you or I deserve it. It is undeserved, unearned merit that's given to us. It is a gift. A gift to you and to me. But we've got to receive it. Some people still very proudly say, I'm not a bad person. I've heard that so many times. I've heard people criticise me and say, how do you say that? You know, I'm not a bad person. Well, if you're not a bad person, you, you clearly are not very self-aware. I know I'm a bad person. Constantly my fault life and things that I struggle with in my life. But God, by his grace, is changing me and has changed me and will change me because I've got eternity to live and... And I know God will not give up until I'm, I'm an ob object of his grace in terms of the way I live. And God wants to work with you too. You've got to admit you need him. You've got to reach out and receive by faith the gift that God offers us. It is by grace alone, not by your works. No one can boast. You can simply celebrate and worship the God of grace. And that's why Paul finally closes in verse 10 by saying this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared us to do good works. He wants us not simply to be the recipients of his grace, but to be the channels of his grace, to show the grace of God in our lives, to bring the light of his grace. Because this world needs grace. Just like Gordon Wilson that godly Christian man, that Methodist draper in Northern Ireland, whose mission, whose work was to bring light and grace into Enniskillen and into Northern Ireland. He even met later on with the, uh, with the IRA and told them that he forgave them and then told them to stop doing what they were doing. Enough people had suffered. He was used by God as a spokesperson into the politics and even into the, into the terrorist groups of Northern Ireland as a work of grace. And God wants us to be works of grace in our places of work, in our families, in our streets. Ask yourself the question, who do you need to forgive today and show grace? Who is longing to receive grace from you at work, in your street, in your family? How are you going to show the grace of God in your words and actions in this coming year? You know, we don't work to be saved. God has done it for us. It is an act of grace. We receive it, but we need to become gifts of grace to this world. Works of grace, works of art, but display the wonderful grace of God. That's our role. Not to be difficult, argumentative people who are called Christian and everyone doesn't like because, you know, we don't live consistently to, to what we say we are. We are to live by grace, showing that grace in our lives every day. We are the recipients of grace. Let's pass it on. Amen. Amen.